Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the uh, epistle of James, chapter 1? Ha ha. (laughs) The best book in the Bible, huh? No, that's Romans. (laughs) No, but if you would turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the epistle of James, we're going to be looking at chapter 1. Over the next uh, four weeks, we're going to have an opportunity to talk about uh, relationships. We're going to be jumping off of uh, the book of James, and then we're going to be uh, doing a uh, review of um, uh, ne- many passages in the Bible that speak about relationships. Um, our theme here at the church is what? God changes people through what? Vital through vital relationships. And James is probably one of the most practical books in the New Testament. Um, he talks about how we live out the gospel, how we live that out practically in our lives, in our relationships, in our churches. He talks about the fact that um, our relationships reveal, our earthly relationships will oftentimes reveal our heavenly relationship, where we are with God. He tells us that uh, prejudice and favoritism will expose the fact of whether we are truly loving God. He talks about the fact that the way that we speak to one another and how we communicate with one another expose what's going on in our hearts. He talks about how we resolve conflict and how we reconcile with one another, displays whether we are at peace with God, which will pour out to peace with one another. So those are going to be some of the themes that we're going to grab onto over the next four weeks. One thing I'm going to be asking of you is this. I think it's John MacArthur that has this way of studying a scripture. And he says that he takes a book of the Bible short book of the Bible that he's going to be preaching through, and he reads through that book every single day for 30 days straight. He does that in preparation for uh, the preaching of of the passage that he's going to give. So my challenge to you as we begin this journey is it's only 108 verses. It's less than 20 minutes of reading. I'm going to challenge you from this point till the time that we're done in about four weeks, can you read through that, God, that um, epistle of James on a daily basis? What you'll find is that as you do that, it starts, you start to meditate on those passages. It starts to, you start to actually memorize sections of the passage, and it starts to be apply, applied in your life and through your life. So that's my challenge for you. Let's begin here in James chapter 1. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed in the nations, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance or steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the man or that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man or person, unstable in all his ways. It was on May 10th, 1989. And then again on May 15th, 1998. And on September 10th, 2012, very 
difficult days for my family, very difficult days for my life, because it was on those days that people that we cared about uh, passed away. It was on August 14, 1992. It was on January the 6th, 1999. 96, excuse me. Um, it was on January the 2nd, 1999. It was on um, October the 9th, 2005, that it was wonderful days in my life. It was either the day my wife decided to marry me or the day that our children were born into this world. God does something through vital relationships, doesn't he? The greatest joys... And the deepest sorrows, one author said, come from being in relationship. So I bet you, if you were to consider the greatest times in your life, you could connect it back to a relationship. And the greatest difficulties that you've ever probably experienced come back to relationship. Well, James knows that well. Why are we studying James when we're talking about relationship? Well, one, and there's one thing that jumps out to me is this. In all likelihood, I believe, and many scholars believe, that this writer, James, is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are other Jameses in the New Testament, some of which died much too early for this book to have been written. And in all likelihood, the man that wrote this book is the man who was a half-brother, born to Mary and Joseph, so therefore he's a half-brother of Jesus. Jude is another book in the New Testament that is um, attributed to a half-brother of Jesus. So there's something about him. There's something about him in this sense. Not that he has more authority than Paul or Peter or other things because the writers of the New Testament were filled by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit to give us the word. But there is something different in the fact that he had a relationship with Christ that many of those other men could not have had. He saw Jesus Christ in the home. He lived with him. He breathed with him. He ate with him. He saw him as a child. He saw him as an adolescent. He saw him as an adult. He saw almost every single day in Jesus' life. That tells me something. Because if he saw this man every single day, that relationship was pretty vital. What you'll find in your study, though, of James is this, that during Jesus' earthly ministry, James didn't believe on him. Jude didn't either. So there was something about him that said, you know what, they didn't see sin necessarily. I, you know, I was actually thinking about it. Can you imagine growing up in that home? And it's like, can you imagine the parents saying, which we should never do, but if you were only like Jesus, right? <laughs> I mean, the guy doesn't do anything wrong. He never does anything wrong. It's just crazy. Um, that would have driven me nuts because... Uh, um, and it probably drove James nuts. Kind of got me thinking about Joseph from the Old Testament. Remember? Joseph was this favorite son. Not perfect by Christ, but he was this favorite son. And the brothers just couldn't stand him. I almost wonder at times if that was what was going on with James. As he's hearing Jesus. And it's like, oh yeah, here's the popularity. Here he goes again, healing another person. And that doesn't do enough to transform him or change him. But something happened radically. He saw his brother forsake the materialism of this world. 
He saw his brother forsake the popularity of this world and tell the truth to people when they desperately needed to hear it. He saw his brother in the greatest times of turmoil in his life, not sin, not attack, not rebel, not go against God. He saw his brother time after time after time loving God and loving others. And so when he saw his brother hang on a bloody cross, in fact, he didn't see his brother hang on a bloody cross. He wasn't there. And I don't know if he says, good, done. I don't know what was in James's heart, but I do know this. Something radically changed after Jesus rose from the dead. That Jesus Christ made a personal visit to his brother. We see that in 1 Corinthians. And his life was radically changed. Because God changes people through vital relationships. And James, from that moment forward, he has now become James the Just. The passion that maybe he had to go against his brother because this is the perfect one. Now it's the passion that he has to display his brother. And he begins this section. He says, James, a servant of God. I mean, how easy would it have been for him to say, I'm the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the child of the Virgin Mary. Remember the Virgin Mary who gave birth to Jesus? I'm his, I'm his child. I'm her child. He could have said that. He didn't. He said, I am a servant. My version says servant. Your version may say actually slave. That's what it literally means. He didn't just simply say, I'm an equal. He put himself under Christ. He sees him as what? He says, God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people have a problem with the um, book of uh, um, James. So let me tell you that up front. Some are going to have some difficulty with the book of James um, because they believe that it is all moralism. It's all law. That Jesus' name is mentioned twice, I believe, in the book. Here in chapter 1 and then again in chapter 2. His cross is never mentioned. Justification by grace through faith is never mentioned in this book. So many people say that the gospel is not there. No, no, the gospel is there. What James is saying is this. If you and I love the Lord Jesus Christ and have been transformed by his grace and for his mercy, we should be merciful people. We should be loving people. Faith needs to be put into action in our relationships with one another. That's what he's saying. He's saying that if you are really truly in Christ, display him, breathe him, show him out to this world. But relationships are messy, aren't they? In relationships, trouble is inevitable. It's there. And in relationships where trouble is inevitable... James says something radical in verse 2. What does he say? You can have what? Joy. Count it all joy. He must be crazy, right? Because as I look at May 10th, 89, and as I look at May 15th, 98, and as I look at September 10th, 2012, do I take joy in the loss of my family members? Yes and no. We're going to find out how you can have yes. In the relationships where there's trouble, we need to know that God is sovereign. He'll tell us about that. In relationships where there's trouble, we must be able to see our need. 
in relationships where there's trouble, you must be able to be willing to submit to God's plan for your life. In relationships where there is trouble, you must ask in faith, and God will get you through. God will grow you in faith in him through the most difficult times of your life if you just are willing to allow him to do so. Well, let's look at this passage and try to break it down a little bit. In, chapter, in verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So what is James getting at here? The first thing I think he's getting at is this, that you have to have a fundamental approach to every circumstance that comes at you. This fundamental approach to every trial, every difficulty is this, consider it joy. Now, he doesn't say it's an emotion. No. He starts by saying you need to think about it as joy. Now, am I supposed to think about the difficulty in and of itself as joy? I don't know if he's ever saying that. What he is saying is this. I want you to consider that God has sovereignly allowed for this to happen in your life and that he will sovereignly, by his grace, take you through this difficult trial. And if that fundamental approach is there, what it will do is radically change your perspective as you deal with the struggle. The fundamental approach says this. Trials are coming. You remember Peter? He says, do not be surprised at the the fiery trials as they come upon you, as though something strange is happening to you. This is not strange. The fact that you're going to have pressure in this life is a byproduct of the fact that we live in a fallen world. And then if you commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will probably have even more trials and more difficulties because the world and the flesh and the devil are at war against you. So don't be surprised at this. And the fundamental approach in order to have joy is the fact that, you know what? I need to accept the trials as expected. I also need to recognize this. There is nothing that Bible ever says that you can't have pain. That as you go through the difficulty, this is painful. It's difficult trials. James doesn't say, and the Bible doesn't tell you that you shouldn't weep. In fact, if you remember, uh, Paul had said, we don't weep as though we, without hope, we weep with hope. That on those days of grief, we grieved, but you know what? I can be thankful for the fact that each one of those people that I told you about that I lost, each one of them took their last breath, and I am confident of this, that they took their last breath and they are with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is my passion to be able to speak the good news to see every person that I know come to faith in him so that when they take their last breath, as we all will, that that last moment will be the next moment in eternity. This fundamental approach is considering it joy. We need to expect the trials. We need to know that there's an emotional pain. But the other thing I want you to consider is this. This fundamental approach that I can have joy in the midst of the trials is not something that's natural and of our own abilities. It's supernatural. That God has to be the one to do a work in your life through this trial. Left to your own devices, you will complain, you will critique, you will get upset, you will grieve, you will get hopeless and helpless. But through God, he can take you through the trial because there is nothing that comes into your life that he cannot empower you to get through. And that fundamental approach will take you through. One last thing I want you to consider about this fundamental approach of joy is this. It's your choice. My youth pastor used to say this. He said, life is not determined by what you want, 
Life is determined by the choices that you make. Now, there's some things I could probably grip, uh, you know, um, deal with theologically on that line, but I think what the point he was getting at is this. There's so many things that come at you relationally, so much pain, so many struggles. My life is not determined by what comes at me. My life is determined in the direction of my heart and my life. Who do I trust in? And James is saying that in these relational difficulties, your fundamental approach must be vertical, not horizontal. That God is going to do some work in your life to transform you inside so that you can go outside. That's a fundamental approach here. But then James says this. He says, verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There is a foundational assurance that you need to have. Not just a fundamental approach, but this foundational assurance. And what's the foundational assurance? God is in control. See, I struggle and you struggle in our relationships because we want to control. I bet you that most of your struggles relationally is the fact that somebody has done something to you that is out of your control and you can't stand it. And if you can realize this, that God is sovereignly in control of everything that occurs. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. The day of our birth and the day of our death is under his arms and in his loving hands. And every single struggle that comes into your life has been filtered through his loving hands. There are some that want to get God off the hook. And they believe that God is not in control of everything. That would drive me nuts. Because if I believed that there is no one who is ultimately in control of this, and this is happening at me willy-nilly, I have no security. But if I know that there's a God who is in control of everything, there's not a molecule in this universe that's outside of his control, and he has brought this trial into my life because he knows this. He knows this is the trial I need to grow in him. And see, that fundamental approach now becomes a foundational assurance. God is in control. I heard this pastor recently say this. It's interesting. He said, you will never see these two words put together in Scripture. God panicked. I like that. I wish I came up with it myself. You will never see those two words put together, God panicked, because he doesn't. God is sovereign over every trial, and he's using this trial to test your faith and help you to develop perseverance. But there's a third thing I want you to consider in this opening section. Not only is there a fundamental approach, joy, foundational assurance, God is in control, but the filtering and purifying process. He says, for you know, verse 3, the testing of your faith develops perseverance or steadfastness. And then verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There is a filtering process, a purifying process that God has decided to uh, take you through. And what he wants to do is to give you the endurance to go through that trial. See, this is a testing of your faith. And God is not looking to test your faith to hinder you. He's looking to test your faith to strengthen you, to strengthen your resolve with him and to strengthen your resolve with one another. He talks about here that you may be perfect and complete. Now, that perfection may be complete and total sinlessness, or it could be maturity. Well, I know and you know that every single one of us are sinners. 
And even though we are justified by his grace, we are righteous in his sight, we are living day by day in this process of growth. I sin every single day. I sin moment by moment at times. But what God is looking to do is to move me positionally from righteous in his sight to practically righteous, right? And that's what he's looking to do with you. And so this refining process is a process where he's looking to grow you. And he does that in what? Vital relationships. That I'm not standing here today because, without somebody bringing me to birth, right? When we were talking about that in Sunday school. Someone said, you know what? You're not, you're not here because you did not choose to be here. Somebody brought you forth, your mom and dad. And you're here because somebody has taught you, teachers and parents and other people, as we saw the dedication. There are vital relationships, and God uses these people in a filtering process to mature and to grow you. So as you go through this process, number one, we need to realize that God is at work to test your faith and to do something in their life. You ever find yourself doubting, though? I do. He says in verse 5, if, if any of you lack wisdom, what are we supposed to do? Ask. Instead of this stubborn self-reliance, I'm hopeful that we're going to have many people at the uh, newcomer's um, luncheon later. I'm hopeful that Pastor Tim is going to have an overflow of those people that have not joined and become members of this church, that they're going to want to become members, not just because it's a document or whatever, but because you're connecting yourself in community with one another. And what God says is this, we all doubt, and we need one another, but we ultimately need him. And instead of this reliance and self-reliance, we need to humble ourselves and admit that we have a problem. We need to turn to him. And when we recognize that we lack the wisdom to figure this out, who do we go to? The source of all wisdom, God. And we know that God reveals his wisdom. How does he do it? He does it by his spirit and through his word and oftentimes through other people. And so that vital relationship of a marriage, that vital relationship of parent and child, that vital relationship of friend to friend and neighbor to neighbor transforms us and changes us. But what does he say here? He says, but let him ask. How do we ask? In faith, verse 6. See, it's not just that we ask for help. Some of us can't do that because we're so prideful. We struggle with asking for help. But that, it's not just asking for help, but it's asking God for help, too. And then we ask for God and help in faith. You ever, at this time, really desperately want something to happen in your life, and you pray once, even twice, and God didn't come through? And so now, it, I guess i got to do it myself? i got to come up with my own plan. I guess God's busy. I need to ask in faith. You know, relationships are not easy. There is no perfect marriages. There are no perfect churches. There are no perfect families. What God says is this, I will help you to endure the trials of a marriage. I'll help you to endure the trials of parenting. I'll help you to endure the trials of your boss tomorrow. I'll help you to endure the trial of the financial difficulties. I'll help you to endure the trial of the physical difficulties. I'll help you endure every one of those trials, and I want to do that, but I want you to come to me to get the wisdom that you need, and I will fill you with that wisdom, and I will empower you. Don't doubt. Trust me 
that I love you and trust me that I've got this in control. It's interesting that James is not saying that this is um, um, easy by any stretch of the imagination. Now, James goes from that to this section. He says this. He calls us double-minded. You ever, under, you ever try to figure out what that means? It's interesting that double-minded means double-souled. Fickle? Yeah, I heard that, right? I got one foot in this area and one foot in the other area. I trust you, God, but only partially. I'm hedging my bets over here. And that person that's trying to hold both grounds is going to find themselves desperately unstable in life. A double-minded man and stable in all his ways. And then he uses this illustration in verse 9. He says, let the brother, lowly brother, poor brother, boast in his exaltation. Now, what is he talking about now? You were just talking about trials. You're talking about joy. You were talking about uh, uh, praying and wisdom. Now you're talking about riches? Where do most people turn their trust to? Rather than vertically, they turn their trust to something horizontally. Money, marriages, possessions, all these earthly things become the foundation for what they believe is real freedom in their lives. What James is saying here is this, to endure and to have lasting endurance in the midst of the trials, we must adopt God's perspective on earthly things. Instead of having an earthly perspective, we need to have an eternal perspective, that God is at work in this. And he is saying this, for the poor person in this earth that believes that they are unloved by God, because there are some preachers today that will actually say that if you don't have money, it is showing that you have a lack of faith in God, right? Health, wealth, and prosperity. So you could be doubting that God loves you and cares for you if you don't have money. And what James is saying is this, instead of the earthly perspective money, I want you to see the eternal perspective of the fact that you were bought with a price, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that money is going to go. A rich person dies just like a poor person does. They will die. They'll go into the same box. What happens the moment after they take their last breath? That's what is eternity. James then says, and the rich in his humiliation. Now, there's some debate here in verse 10. Some say that James is chiding the rich and saying that rich are not inheriting the eternal life. Could be. Or other people believe that he is talking to rich and poor believers, and he is saying instead of focusing on earthly possessions, those that don't have it and those that do, focus on the eternal possession that you have in Christ. I, I tend to lean on that one, but it, it doesn't matter. Both work. That God is saying this, that your eternal inheritance is much greater than any earthly inheritance that you have. Who's rich here anyway? I heard a stat recently which drove me nuts, that if you own a home and if you have a car, you're in the richest 4% of the world's population. Because I wouldn't consider myself rich, and probably none of you in here would consider yourself rich. But the reality is, if that's true, 96% of the world's population is less well-off than we are. 
financially, materially. I go into my office and I can pick off a ton of different Bibles. As I was preparing for the sermon, I was pulling off different Bibles, different books. I can go to my computer and pull up verses pretty easily like that. We have so many blessings in this world, so many opportunities, even just the blessing of being able to sit in this congregation this morning and not have to fear our lives. And there are people all over this world that fear even having this book in their hands because they're afraid that their lives will be taken advantage of and hurt. Do you see the blessing that you have? And what James is saying is this, instead of focusing on what you don't have, the deficits, focus on the surplus that you have in Christ and in one another and in this one another relationship. A couple more things I'd like you to consider before we close is this. James says that um, when you go through the trials, he says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trials because when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. That's salvation for those who love him. And then he says something interesting. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. You remember what Adam and Eve thought? You remember Adam and Eve when they sinned? And Adam, who did he blame when he sinned? He blamed Eve. But right after that, who did he blame? Yeah, he did. He says, the woman that you gave me. When we're tempted, we should never believe that when the trial comes into your life that God is looking to tempt you. He's not. He desperately is not. God hates sin. The trials that come at you are called to grow your faith in Christ. The temptations that come to you are here to rob your faith in Christ. God is not looking to do that. You know, every circumstance that you endure reveals who you trust in. Every circumstance that you go through reveals what you treasure and what you desire and your passions and your dreams and your aspirations and your hopes. Your interpersonal relationships and the difficulties in those interpersonal relationships often reveal what's inside. You ever notice that? The difficult relationships they have with one another expose what's going on within. And what does James say here? Who do we blame? He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Each one is tempted by what? When he is lured away and enticed by his own evil desires. And when the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. James is using this fishing illustration, and he's saying that as I'm going out and fishing, you throw out the lure, and you're trying to catch the fish's attention. And the fish's attention, the fish believes, ooh, I got food. And the fish grabs on to the line, and it becomes food. And that is exactly what happens with us. That when our focus of attention becomes earthly, not vertical, earthly, we miss it. And we become food to sin. And there's a process that he talks about. He says that you are dragged away in your mind, you're enticed in your passions, and then you act out. In your life. I bet you every temptation that you deal with goes through that process. I want you to consider one thing. That every circumstance that you endure, every relational difficulty that you endure, is either a trial to grow your faith or a temptation to rob it. Do you know who chooses? You do. 
See, even the temptations that come at you, and maybe somebody's looking to make you sin and encourage you to sin, guess what? Who chooses? You do. See, when that trial comes, that relational difficulty or the difficulties that come into your life, I can go vertical and outward to get the help of others to help me to endure, or I can go inward towards self. And it's either a trial to grow my faith or a temptation that's going to hinder it. James closes with this, don't be deceived. Oftentimes we are deceived because we are listening to the wrong people. Listen, today as I teach, go back to the word, make sure what I'm asking you to do is right. And if what I'm asking you to do is right, then it's not coming from me, it's coming from him, then do it. That's James's argument, right? James says that if you believe this gospel message, start to live it, that this community of believers here at the chapel should be the most loving, gracious, forgiving, holy people. Why? Because we've been transformed by his grace and we should be living and breathing by his grace. That's a community that people want to be a part of. My final thing I want you to consider is this, your mindset. James ends and he says, I want you to know where every good and perfect gift comes from. Where does it come from? It comes from God. Every gift that you have even the breath that you have right now is a gracious gift from God. I oftentimes say to my clients, you know what? Why is the ceiling holding up above us? Why is the floor not giving out? Why is there oxygen supply? Why is my heart beating today? It is beating because God has sovereignly ordained for that to occur. And guess what? He loves you. And maybe when my heart stops beating, and it will one day. And maybe the ceiling falls, or maybe the floor gives out. And maybe the tsunami comes at you. And maybe it's a relationship, and maybe there's difficulty. In and through that difficulty, God promises you what? I love you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I've allowed for this trial to come. And I will empower you to get through this trial. And I'm going to make you different through this trial. Isn't there hope there? See, God changes people through vital relationships. But now here's the last thing. The reason why James could write this book is because not because he was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He can't write this book just because he was the child of Mary. He can't write this book because he sat and listened to Jesus preach a bunch of sermons. He can't write this book because alone that Jesus rose from the dead. He can only write this book because he has been transformed by God. And now he wants to see that gospel message go out to others. There are some of you here this morning who hear these words. You've heard about sin. You've heard about salvation. You've heard about it. So many times. That's another way we're blessed here in the United States. You can just turn on a TV. Well, don't do that sometimes. <laughs> you can hear the gospel message a lot of times, and you've rejected it, turned away from it. I don't need it. James says that one of the ways you endure trials is that you see your need, and you turn to Christ. That's true for the believer, but that's desperately true for you who has never trusted in Christ. You need to be able to see your need. 
that you think that the relational difficulties you go through today is the greatest problem that you have. No, it isn't if you don't trust in God. The greatest relational difficulty you have right now is vertical. You're separated from God. And what God has done for you in Christ is this. You have offended me, God says, but I have sent you my son. He lived perfectly for you. He died in your place. Trust him. And for those of us that have trusted him, know that the trials that are coming into your life, relational or whatever, are being filtered through the loving hand of God. Keep the foundational attitude of joy. Keep that foundational assurance that God is at work. Know that this is a filtering process, that he's looking to grow you. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my life. Lord, I pray, 